This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guests today are from the organization Save the Sound, Soundkeeper Bill Lucy and climate and energy attorney Charles Rothenberger. I'd like to welcome both of you to Digging in the Dirt. Uh, Thanks, Kevin. Uh, Great to be here. Yep. Same same for me, Kevin. Thank you. So let's start with you, Bill. As the Long Island Soundkeeper, you protect the water quality and the fish and wildlife of the sound to benefit both the people and the sound, is what the website says. And you are an experienced commercial fisherman and environmental educator. So under that title of Long Island Soundkeeper, what is it exactly that you do? Well, in short, I have a boat that I base out of Black Rock Harbor in Bridgeport. And from there, I patrol Long Island Sound. I'll go up the coastline and look for pollution sources, map out culverts, and I respond a lot to citizen complaints. If they see something they think is an infraction, I'll head to that spot and do some water testing and document what's going on. Okay. Do you have uh, legal authority? Can you arrest people for polluting? I do not. We're strictly a nonprofit, though we do work very closely with the regulatory agencies, both at the municipal level, the state level, and the, and the federal level. Mm-hmm. So I guess that brings us to you, Charles. As climate and energy attorney, uh, what, what do you do? Uh, well, right now, I'm actually just writing a note to myself for the next legislative session, raise a bill to give Bill uh, police authority to make arrests. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So that was a great idea, Kevin. So as the climate and energy attorney for for Save the Sound uh, generally, uh, a lot of my work is focused um, both uh, on the legislative side, um, working up at the General Assembly um, to pass uh, public policy, which I know we'll get into a little bit more detail, um, as well as working before uh, DEEP, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, um, and the Public Utilities Regulatory Authority, Pura, um, on the implementation side of, of these policies. And it's been uh, a really busy time um, at Pura, uh, for sure, looking at trying to bring our electricity sector into the 21st century. They've, they've had a very robust grid modernization docket um, that's been going on for uh, the last uh, year and a half or two years or so, as well as a number of uh, more discrete policies looking at expanding uh, solar uh, and rooftop solar and um, uh, distributed energy um, here in the state of Connecticut, electric vehicles, et cetera. So. Okay. So, I mean, I see also on the website that there's things that are going on, like uh, working on stopping sewage leaks in Westchester and pollution from Danbury, cleaning up some PCB contamination. Uh, are you, when somebody like a bill identifies a problem, and these seem to be long-term problems. Um, is, is that what you do? You go in and then you start the legislative part of it or starting legal action against some of these polluters? Yeah, so so Save the Sound does both of those things. We sort of operate both as a public policy shop as well as um, a nonprofit uh, law firm. So um, when there are violations um, that are found, um, we do file suit um, against the offenders. Um, you know, and if those are the municipalities, then... Uh, we file suit against the municipalities. 
But we do also work with the General Assembly and with the legislature to improve public policy so that hopefully public certainly is better informed um, when things like uh, sewage spills happen. Um, you know, public awareness is really important. Um, and uh, we were successful this past session with a su- passing a, a sewage right to know bill. It's one of the few few bright spots in this year's legislative session. And, and Bill, you probably have more details about that particular piece of legislation. You want to say something, Bill, about that? Yeah, sure. So Charles touched on a point. So we do have standing as an organization, as any citizen does in the United States under the Clean Water Act, which, by the way, is turning 50 next year. Uh, Clean Water Act 50 is something we're going to be celebrating because what it did is it gave enforcement ability to average people. What you need to know, know, though, is what's going on. And so uh, there's a sewage right to know bill that was passed over a decade ago, and we've been continuously striving to improve it. And this year we had a breakthrough where uh, the state, Connecticut Deep, agreed to do some form of electronic notification. Everybody has cell phones these days or smartphones. So they're going to use Twitter or Facebook. They're, They're trying to figure it out with their limited resources where a group of people who are interested in a particular water body can sign up for these notifications. So if there is a big spill, like the 2 million gallons that came out of New Haven last year, uh, people will know that it's going on in a timely manner, and then they can avoid the beach or going fishing or whatever they were planning on doing in the water that day. So you're telling me before this, nobody had that uh, ability to know that something like uh, millions of gallons were spilled into the water? Well, that's why we keep showing back up at the legislature, because a couple of years ago, there was a, I think it was 5 million gallons went into the Naugatuck River, and I believe the mayor didn't find out for four days. It was just an accident, and a cable was cut, and the whole plant was just releasing, and there were people fishing down there at the time, and there was no notification. They're supposed to, by law, notify the state within two hours. And if it's a big spill, the state usually elevates it and uses their regular channels to tell people, but there are spills going on all the time. And even a small spill, if it's in a small stream, I grew up while I got into this field catching snails and frogs in a little stream behind my house. So even 50 gallons of sewage going into that could be a health risk. So that was one of the things we did this year also was to remove the reporting requirement. It was limited at 5,000 gallons to no gallons. So if it's a if it's a spill of any kind that gets into the water, the public has to know within two hours. Well, I hate to be the cynic about this kind of stuff here, but I think that a lot of these entities who have these spills will have uh, uh, the sense that this is the cost of doing business. Like they can pay the fine but they're getting rid of all this chemicals on their property that they didn't want. Uh, I think it happened down in North Carolina with the pig farms and all the pollution that came out of all the, the pig waste. Um, it was a very convenient thing to have the hurricane coming through and, and just dump it all into the oceans and the rivers. So, I mean, what do you have to say about that? Do you think a lot of that goes on or it really is an accident? Well, one thing that we also added, not this round, but in 2018 was a $25,000 penalty. And the EPA can also get involved and they can issue daily penalties. So they can have a $10,000 or $15,000 fine that accrues every single day that you have a sewage breach going on. So after a while, it definitely will add up. And most of these organizations, they don't want to have these spills. They want to have a good tight collection system. They want to have a modern plant. 
mean, everybody wants to have clean water. It's a bipartisan issue. So there are probably some people out there that may, may not care enough to put in the, the maintenance, but all the sewage treatment plant operators that I interact with, they're all working to get funding to fix these problems. And Connecticut has the Clean Water Fund, uh, which had a substantial amount of money put into it, their biannual budget this year, with another victory that uh, we saw happen this legislative session. And that's gonna, you know, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to clean up some of these old plants. And that money is going to be available through grants and low interest loans. And then hopefully this federal infra infrastructure money comes down and we can really start cleaning up. Because if you look at the map of the state, the impaired waters list is extensive. Uh, we have a lot of water that is polluted in Connecticut. It has been getting better. People have been really focusing on this but we do have a long way to go. So I, I can see your cynicism there, but for the most part, I think people want to do the right thing. You have something to say about it, Charles? Well, I think in Connecticut, that's right. You know, I, I think that uh, we do generally have responsible, um, good actors uh, who try to comply with the regulations that we have in place. And I think uh, all the more important that we continue to improve and, and tighten those regulations for uh, for the benefit uh, of all of our welfare and the environment. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that you guys believe that. I, so, you know, you're, Save the Sound is sort of acting in behalf of a lot of people who really don't have a lot of power. I mean, you're, you push for good legislation, you push for enforcement. What, what are the, some of the things that you think are really crucial that Save the Sound does for just the general people? Because I don't think a lot of people know exactly you know, what's the problem and how to fix it? Yeah, well, I think we're unique in that we're really multifaceted, right? So, you know, my focus is primarily on, on the policy and the legislative side, but we do have, uh, you know, a very talented group of folks that work hands-on um, in terms of habitat restoration um, and working to improve uh, the landscape and the environment um, in a very direct physical way. A lot of that work involves dams, installing um, fish ladders on uh, dams that are installed, um, you know, installing rain gardens um, in particular areas. Um, you know, and those are things that, you know, in many cases, particularly uh, with respect to the rain gardens, you know, directly benefit um, communities. But we also do uh, do a lot of uh, outreach in support of our, our legislative and our policy agendas as well. Public pressure uh, is, is key. Uh, you know, we need to influence publicly elected officials. Um, and, you know, by and large, they, they do respond to their constituencies when the voice of their constituencies um, can be elevated uh, and, and brought to their attention. That was a little bit harder this year than it has been in years past as we've uh, been operating in a in a virtual world uh, with the General Assembly. Um, so we haven't had quite as much direct ability uh, to influence legislators um, as, as we typically have. Um, that, that access was very much uh, restricted. Um, you know, and unfortunately, I think it, it sort of shows in uh, the, the, the relative dearth of, of really um, strong environmental policy that was adopted this past year. Um, you know, there were a couple of good bills and, uh, uh, you know, Bill was talking one of them in terms of the, uh, the enhanced sewage right to know. Um, but, but by and large, you know, if, if you looked at the suite of elements that were introduced at the beginning of the session, um, many of them 
the governor's own bills, uh, very few of them actually survived the session. You know, and some of them things that you know, one might easily assume are it's pretty low hanging fruit, right? Um, yeah, there were some really bold um, and ambitious uh, pieces of legislation, um, but there were some you know less ambitious but equally important kind of bread and butter uh, pieces of legislation, which also didn't quite make it across the finish line. Um, and I think uh, probably if you if you took stock of the whole session, um, I would assume. Fewer bills passed this year than do in a typical session. I think it was just a, a, a much a much more difficult funnel uh, for a lot of a lot of reasons. Yeah, COVID being number one, right? The um, save the sound is right there in in the title, intentions of the organization. And what maybe you could address, Bill, when it was first formed, it was because the sound was in pretty bad shape. There was a lot of things going on, like eutrophication, you know the. The oyster beds were bad. I mean, there was a lot of different issues and lots of lots of runoff of nitrogen and phosphates and all that kind of stuff into the sound. And it seems to have turned a corner. Are you in agreement with that? It has, but <clears throat> prior to this, I had been in Alaska, so my my gauge of what clean water is 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 completely slanted because of that. We have a long way to go, and with climate change, the water and the sound is getting warmer. So we're going backwards while we go forward because all those problems get worse with warm water, um, all the algae blooms and the, and the lack of oxygen. Now, there's been great strides in reducing nitrogen from the permitted um, sewage treatment plants. So now we really, as you mentioned, need to focus on stormwater. And one bill that did make it uh, through almost intact was the governor's bill uh, concerning climate change and adaptation. And the first part of what that did was uh, give enabling legislation to all the Connecticut towns to form stormwater authorities. Right now we only have one, which is in New London, and it's working very well. Uh, what that does is it generates a fee. So if you have uh, a parking lot or a rooftop, you are using the drainage system. So all the pollution from the stormwater that's washing off of your property going into the system and into the sound, now we'll have a dedicated funding source if a town chooses to set one of these things up to start addressing the problem through rain gardens, through regular basin cleaning, bioswales, uh, cisterns, so you can hold the water and put them into sewage treatment. So that was a big win, um, uh, HB 6441, that also allowed the Green Bank to set up an environmental infrastructure fund and it can accept monies like with all this infrastructure money, hopefully coming out of the feds, where they can look at innovative ways to deal with some of this pollution to really get it fully cleaned up from oyster reefs to constructed wetlands to land preservation, all these things we need to mimic a natural forest. So when the, the rain comes down on highly developed uh, Connecticut, it soaks into the ground instead of washing all that pollution you mentioned into the sound. Mm -hmm. And so th this is something most people wouldn't even think about is storm runoff. I mean, and it's, it's but it's a big problem, right? I mean, it just every time there's a, a huge storm, it just can rush, rush all the oil residues, the different pesticides, the different uh, chemicals and, and, um, and nitrogens and stuff that are being used by the uh, lawn and garden care groups. People don't understand just how much this affects the sound. It, it's the number one reason why our waters are impaired right now. The, the storm runoff. 
Yeah, storm runoff. I mean, if you think of all the bridges on I-95 going over all the rivers in Connecticut down by the Sound, just the tire crumbs alone are highly toxic. They just discovered a new chemical out in on the West Coast. It's called 6-PPD um, quinone, and it's been found to interfere with the regulation of adult breeding coho salmon just kills them dead perfectly healthy fish and in small, small small amounts and I go under all those bridges in my boat when I'm patrolling and there's straight pipes all over the place so every time it rains all those bits of chemical from our tires are going right into the sound and that's where our river herring are coming up and they're going changing from salt water to fresh water and they're very vulnerable when they're undergoing that physiological process and there's physical chunks there if you look at the sea turtle mortality in the southeastern United States from stormwater runoff carrying microplastics and tire crumbs and all that good stuff that the baby sea turtles are filling up with that and they're washing back to shore dead. And in Florida, 90% of the dead uh, hatchling sea turtles are packed with plastic from stormwater runoff. So mm. uh, it's a real problem. And people really, we really need to change our perception that, you know, it rains, it cleans everything up and my driveway is clean, my car is clean. Um, that's going to be the big problem we have to solve in the next next few decades. Well, that's also right in contrast, and I think uh, Kevin goes to uh, your your earlier question about you know bad, bad actors and, and how well folks are complying. Uh, you know, I think for most people, when you think of water pollution, right, um, you you think of sort of that that end of the pipe, right? The, the, the pipe that's spewing thousands of gallons of whatever noxious compound um, into the water from uh, an industrial um, or other uh, process. And, and for the most part, we have done a good job of addressing that and of, uh, of remediating that, you know, so it really is this much broader um, stormwater issue now, which uh, it's been uh, a lot more difficult to, to regulate, sort of get our hands around. And you're, that's what you're working on. Yes. Yes. And you think it's going to come up to yeah, fruition? So, well, you know, one of the projects I'm doing is I'm mapping every stormwater pipe that goes into Long Island Sound. I have a, a second sound keeper down in the Western Sound and we're over the next couple of years, we're crawling along the coastline and we have a phone app and that takes a location and a picture of every pipe. And what we're going to do with that is set up a random sample and see what's coming out of those pipes. We have a lab expansion going on in New York and they're gonna be able to test for uh, nutrients and surfactant soaps. And so what that does, we can already do bacteria. So we know if there's cross-contamination with say a sewage pipe, but with the soap that might be someone's gray water that's been put into the uh, stormwater drain. And then as you mentioned, all the lawn fertilizers. So we'll be able to figure out where some of these uh, stormwater sources are concentrating at the end of a pipe, and then we can look upstream for solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I see local lawn guys breaking the rules all the time. You know, they're not supposed to lay down nitrogen. They're supposed to report it. And they don't, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, um, it's, uh, it's, I think, and I don't think the public really gets it because they, they want a nice green lawn. You know, I look at all my neighbors and every other week I have two guys coming on either side of me, two different companies spraying pesticides and killing all my pollinators because I'm totally organic in my yard, in my garden. And it really bugs the hell out of me to see this stuff being sprayed constantly. And then on top of that, it runs off. 
Yeah. So with the with the MS4 permit, the municipal stormwater permit, all the towns that are in that program have to be testing their worst culverts. So I believe the top six, they have to test them all once, see where the problems are, then go to the worst six. And then it's their job to increase the water quality coming out of that pipe. So that's going to be fertilizer education, uh, switching to organic practices. They're going to have to comply as a municipality to avoid violation under the Clean Water Act, and they're going to have to deal with the problem locally. And it's a long-term issue. You have to change the hearts and minds. But I, I think with the penalties involved and the fact that these permits are in place, and then with the new software we have looking at watersheds and where the sources are, there's some excellent uh, nitrogen modeling done by UConn, Jamie Vaudry, and the Nature Conservancy is also really involved in this and coming up with solutions. So if you have all this, say, nitrogen coming in off this section of river that you've identified, there's solutions you can use, such as putting in a trench of wood chips. Those wood chips will grab that subterranean water and, and use up that nitrogen before it ends up in the, in the stream and then out to the sound. So it's just a matter of bringing all the technology we know we have and funding it. So that's really what a lot of this is. We got resiliency funding through 25 million for that with the microgrid resiliency. It's also now combined with ecosystem services. So you, you can do all kinds of things um, that right now are more in the pilot project, but really we're talking rain gardens. You need thousands of these things in every city to have a real impact. And as far as the pesticides, you know, we keep chipping away at which ones are can be retired. Clipfos is one of them. You know, there's all the bad press coming out on Roundup. Now I have a small organic farm too. It's not a certified organic farm, but I use all, all OMRI certified stuff. And I raise organic pasture chickens and I leave riparian buffers on all my streams. I'm right on the edge of water company land. And so instead of mowing right up to the stream and for that great view, I leave a big wide swath of vegetation to soak up any pollution that's coming off. And Charles, you're working to get some of these rules and regulations put into place through legislation, working with the Connecticut legislature. I guess there's somebody doing it for the New York legislature also. What can local people, uh, people listening who are just like uh, average Joes who are concerned about the water, they, they, they use the sound, they're concerned about the planet. What can they do to support your efforts? Uh, how, how do they go about to put pressure on the politicians and the industry? So I would say maybe to uh, to self-promote a little bit, um, you know, certainly would encourage them to visit our website and if interested, sign up on alerts on uh, what's happening up at the legislature. We're monitoring that. We send out regular updates um, to folks on our service list um, and also provide them with very specific, uh, discrete opportunities to engage um, in that process at strategic times, you know, in addition to just encouraging them to uh, develop relationships with their local legislators as well. Um, you know, by and large, um, these are folks that are pretty accessible, um, particularly when they're not in session and spending a lot of time up in Hartford, right? They're in the community. Um, we have a part-time legislature. So, uh, you know, they're citizen legislators. Um, so that's critical. And, uh, you know, we will also uh, let folks know when there are opportunities um, to formally testify on bills during the public hearing process. Oh, cool. Um, one of the things that we do have do well here in Connecticut is, is the public hearing process. Um, 
again, this year maybe was a bit of an anomaly doing everything through uh, Zoom and, uh, and YouTube Live. Um, but, but by and large, it is a very um, open and accessible process um, for, for the general public. And, and we're, we're happy to help facilitate that. And what do you think, Bill? What do, we, what, what do you recommend to people to, to do as well? Well, I think there's a lot of power at local government, um, whether it was the fracking ban effort that started in one town, went to another, where it was the plastic ban bag bans that started in one town. And then they, these things become state policy after several dozen towns that are influenced by their local citizens in the old New England style. They say, okay, this is what the people want to do. And I think the state's fairly responsive to that. As far as Save the Sound goes, we have a couple of programs that volunteers get involved with, or three. We have a big beach cleanup effort in Connecticut. We've been as high as 2,500 volunteers. We have ongoing bacteria sampling in uh, the Western Sound in New York, Westchester, where we do constant bacteria monitoring with volunteers to find trouble spots and try and get them fixed. And then we also have what's called the Unified Water Study, which were uh, 23 or maybe even 24 groups now. And that's all the way from the Bronx to Queens and then out to the eastern end um, where we have these groups going out every two weeks and doing ambient water quality testing. And that data is actually being used by the state. It's being accepted by the EPA. And they, they, the state and federal agencies just don't have that kind of, of workforce where we have all these groups in 40 bays and harbors. And so when something else comes along, like they want to know what the pH is for shell day, we have a whole army of people out there that'll take a water sample for the state. And then we can kind of get a, a, a feeling for how bad the, the ocean acidification is at that hmm. period of time. So we have a big network of folks. I encourage everybody who's interested in this to contact us through our website. And um, we'd love to add more groups to that. It's a fully EPA funded uh, program through the Long Island Sound Study. And we're going on five years now and we keep expanding it. Oh, where, where can they contact you? You can contact me at blucy at savethesound.org or you can just go to the website and use the general email and all those inquiries get sent to the um, proper department. Hmm. I recently, not, not too long ago, had the Save the Sounds Director of Water Quality, sure. Peter Linderoth on. And we had this interesting conversation about sort of an environmental report card for towns and cities along the Sound. I was wondering if I could get your take on that. Or you think the report card is showing that uh, the cities and towns are improving in their habits in regard to the sound or are there still a few bad actors along the, the, uh, the sound that don't care? Well, not everybody got an A. I'll, I'll tell you that. And the ones that got Fs were not too happy about it. And we have to go and show up in front of the water quality commissions and different places and, and defend how we arrived at it. It's a very, we have a couple of science advisors um, that verified our methods and how we got to the grades and the data is all high quality data and it's just numbers. So if you got a bad grade, you need to do something to fix it. Um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of places that are doing better, but and overall the sound has been improving. But when you get to the local bays and harbors, that's when the real local pollution issues rear their head and they, those issues can't hide from the numbers. 
Well, you know, previous administration would just change the numbers. Yeah, right. Sorry we don't be- do that. We are a law and science based organization. We just, if it's not good for us, hey, that's like, for example, there was a lot of uh, CSO pollution coming out of Manhattan. We do some work in New York City as well because that water flushes into the sound proper. And through all the water metering and water conservation and water bills in the city, they really cut down on a lot of their overflows. And so we were thinking it was going to be this big, bad number, but it really improved. Oh, Maybe good. it didn't help us for advertising, you know, help help us save everything. But it is what it is. That's what we really want to do, even if it if it's not going to be a big revenue generator for us. So how do you, how does Save the Sound get their money? I mean, how are you funded and can people also donate to to help the the cause with Save the Sound? Yeah, so we yeah, we are a member-based organization. Um so we do have dues-paying membership uh in in Connecticut and New York. You know, but also uh through specific grant applications that we submit to support uh some of our, our discrete programmatic work as well. Um so, you know, really a a range of uh, a range of venues, I guess. Well, good thing you're doing all that great work. You know, uh, people, uh, their website is uh, www.savethesound.org. Make sure you can go over there and see all kinds of stuff. I was just over there looking at it, and they and they do have uh, a whole interactive page there where you can click on different colored dots and see beach access, pollution, and all kinds of um, information that's pretty easily accessible. I thought that was pretty cool. Before we finish up here, tell me about Paddle for the Sound. You guys have this. Yeah, it's a it's a fundraiser. It's to get everybody out there and join the sound. And in pre-COVID times, we would have uh, our boats as safety boats, and they would paddle all the way across Long Island Sound. But uh, right now, it's just go out, get in a kayak, get on a paddleboard, get out, enjoy it. And you can sign up on, on the website uh, directly. And it's a it's a festive way. We don't want to be all doom and gloom about how everything's polluted and declining. But it's important to us that people have both access to the sound and that they're enjoying it. I'd like to know a little bit about sea level rise. I mean, we, we're seeing all these melting glaciers and predictions of sea level rise. Are Connecticut and Long Island Sound uh, residents along the water, should they be worried about this? Yes, absolutely. Um, just because of uh, uh, the quirks of geography, um, Connecticut is actually uh, particularly vulnerable um, to sea level rise. Um, it's going to hit us uh, a little bit harder than some uh, other areas along the uh, along the eastern seaboard. Um, and uh, you know, this is one of the uh, you know the, the difficulties in terms of you know what was kind of a, a, a lackluster effort on the mitigation side um, the General Assembly. Addressing resilience um, is, is certainly important, but we also have to be focusing on the mitigation side and driving down um, our climate emissions because uh, we know we're already too far in to avoid all of the consequences, uh, but I think we can still avoid uh, the worst consequences. So some of the actions before the General Assembly that you know, didn't make it over the finish line are, are really critical. Um, you know, here in Connecticut, right now, it's really the transportation sector that's driving our, our climate emissions. Um, it accounts for about 40% um, of our emissions. And much 
I guess, an analogy to the stormwater issue on, on water pollution. Transportation, right, is driven by a large number of small sources, um, you know, the vehicles and uh, the cars and the trucks that we're driving. So the legislature did actually have a plan before it to address that. Um, a, a regional cooperative effort known as the Transportation and Climate Initiative, which would basically replicate uh, the success that we're having in the uh, electric generation sector, um, where Connecticut is a member with a dozen other states of the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, um, which uh, is a cap on carbon emissions from uh, electric generators. Uh, the Transportation and Climate Initiative would likewise um, or similarly cap emissions from the transportation sector, lowering that over time by about 26% um, over the next 10 years, which was the initial phase of the program. And because um, entities that are um, importing uh, on-road diesel and other fuels into the participating states would need to hold auctioned allowances to do that, there would also be additional revenue to help us address our emissions, improve public health, and, and really improve the quality of life in, of communities across the state. That was something that uh, I know uh, the governor uh, was very engaged in. I think it, it sort of didn't catch, uh, catch fire until relatively late in the session. Um, you know, we are hopeful that we can uh, return to that um, and, uh, and hopefully adopt that program um, sooner rather than later so that we can start putting into place um, the necessary infrastructure um, to actually implement it. Although, uh, you know, we, we need to start doing uh, the spade work now. Um, the program itself um, uh, would, uh, would be up and running in, in 2023. Um, so that would be the first year of compliance for these entities. And, and the period before that uh, would be used to put in the ne- necessary um, infrastructure to, uh, to effectuate that. Well, for me, it's painfully slow, and I hope we don't run out of time on all these issues and find ourselves in a pickle. Um, one last thing, Bill, anything you want to say to people uh, about you know the situation with Long Island Sound and what you, you feel like we should be addressing? Or they should? And on this show, we always say it's like one backyard at a time. You know, Start in your own backyard and get something done. And pretty soon we'll have the numbers. You have the same kind of feeling for the sound. Oh yeah, right now. I mean, we've got our we've got a good hold of the polluters uh, and the the wastewater treatment plants are under permit. They're being watched when they're not behaving. They're all under consent order. There's money available. The, the problem is all of us. We're driving on the roads. We have impervious surfaces we use products that end up in the in the storm water and out into the the sound um and like like uh, charles is saying we really got to start throttling back our greenhouse gas emissions because the sea level rise it's it's coming i mean even if we mitigate now there's going to be a lot of properties that are going to be underwater it's going to it's going to change the whole tax base for a lot of these towns and unfortunately, the lower lying areas typically coincide with uh, neighborhoods that don't necessarily have the same economic resources that maybe some of the more uh, higher beach communities have where they can pay to raise their houses and afford the flood insurance increases. There's areas where 
people can't get access to that that funding because they just don't have the resources to make the construction change to come into compliance. So there's a big equity issue with the sea level rise. And I'm just going to say it straight out. We have to retreat. We have to have a management retreat from the coast. Now we need to rewild those areas. We need to allow the coastal marshes to move inland. We need to create a lot more green space on our heavily developed coastline to just let it's going to come and we have to learn to live with it and we have to let it come in and we can turn it to our benefit. We can create a lot more wildlife habitat with this sea level rise if we do it correctly. Well, thank you, gentlemen. We're running out of time here. I appreciate you coming aboard. Uh, Soundkeeper Bill Lucy and Climate and Energy Attorney for Save the Sound, Charles Rothenberger. Thank you so much for coming aboard. Thanks, Kevin. It was a delight. Happy to come back anytime. Oh, yeah. We will have you. You guys keep up the good work. We need, we need it. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You have been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org. And now all Digging in the Dirt interviews can be found on Spotify.